This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. I'm your host, Eric Jones. With us today is Laura Elder, Assistant Professor of Global Studies at St. Mary's College, Notre Dame. Together we discuss the hot trend that is Islamic finance and hear about the role gender plays in this influential institution. Welcome everyone to this edition of Crossroads. With me today is Laura Elder. Uh, Welcome, Laura. Thank you. Laura is an assistant professor in the Department of Global Studies and the Program of Intercultural Studies at St. Mary's College of Notre Dame, just just down the road. So again, welcome to DeKalb. Thank you so much. Are our cornfields better than... Your cornfields are better than our cornfields. You are exactly right, sir. (laughs) Your corn is higher. (laughs) Okay, well, you know, (laughs) small victories. Take that, Notre Dame. We're coming for you in football next. Um, I had a whole conversation about cornfields to myself on the way in here, so you really got me. Yeah. We're the home of Monsanto corn genetics, so yeah, we're going to win. S- strong work. <laughs> yeah. Laura's lecture, and which represents her work as a, that she just is finishing as a Fulbright Fellow in, um, in Malaysia. Her talk was Sh- uh, Sharia Superstars, Wall Street Wolves, and Emerging Regimes in Islamic Finance. What is Islamic finance? Uh, so Islamic finance is basically the, meant to be a provision of uh, financial services and intermediation that adheres to the, the rules of Sharia law. And those rules include uh, uh, prescribing uh, interest and gambling and uncertainty and also um, calling for a proscribing um, the sharing of risk, say, between a bank and an, and an individual investor. Uh, and the other aspect of Islam and finance is um, not dealing with businesses that uh, ha- deal in haram businesses, uh, for example, alcohol or tobacco, those sorts of things. So you put all of those things together, and the idea of Islamic finance is that um, there should be a way of arranging financial intermediation that would be so more socially just for individuals. And is that seen as... Particularly, obviously, within an Islamic context, that's seen as socially just, but th- that that is perceived as being better for the non-Islamic community as well. I, I guess I'm asking some of those I talk to perceive this. Yeah, if, if all financial institutions ran this way, it would it would be a lot of the problems we've seen wouldn't we wouldn't see them. I mean, maybe that's a stretch, but uh, would would they perceive it that way that it's a better that's definitely a claim uh, that the industry makes for sure. And there's a lot of playing with the language uh, in recent times, um, talking about it as um, social investment, talking about it as participation banking, uh, which has become particularly popular in Turkey, for example, uh, and trying to sort of play with the language uh, to make it clear that it's not just uh you know, by Muslims for Muslims, but it's actually meant to be something that would have an effect in all e- economies all around the world. Um, so yes, that's the idea, which is that it should uh, promote justice for everybody. Yeah. Your and related to uh, Islamic finance, of course, is the Sharia, and your your title, Sharia superstars. Uh, I saw some of these pictures uh, of your folks, but tell us, tell our audience who who are the Sharia superstars. So 
Uh, I guess, you know, part of the, the impulse behind the talk is, of course, as with anything, um, there's always a difference between the theory and practice, and I'm particularly interested in how intermediation works in practice. And so the Sharia superstars, uh, there's roughly just over, it's about 1,100 people in the world right now um, who've been duly recognized as having the expertise um, to, to provide rulings about what should count as properly Islamic finance and what should, what should not count, what should not be allowed. Um, it, it sounds like a relatively small number of people have an inordinate influence. It's a very small number of people uh, when you think about the trillions and trillions and trillions of, of dollars that are washing all around the world in these markets is a very small number of people. And actually, the superstars is an even smaller world. Um, so there we're looking at just a, just a handful of people who are serving on 100, 150 different boards at the same time, uh, often um, you know, in the same industry, all in financial services. And so what they are thinking and the kinds of arguments that they make have extraordinary sway all around the world. Um, and the, the superstars, I think, are interesting because uh, it gives us a clue about how this alternative framework for how finance should work is being knit together around the world. And most of those superstars are coming from the MENA region. They've, they've been trained at Al-Azhar and other well-known um, schools uh, in Islamic law. Um, there are, there's, you know, there's a few Southeast Asians, uh, and really the only person who makes the superstar li list is uh, Daud Bakar, who is a Malaysian scholar, um, and he's really the only one who's managed to, to bust into the superstar levels at this point. Well, that was my next question. The, the you know, part of your talk was of uh, emerging regimes, and you, you focused on, on Malaysia, and they, they seem to be a big player in in Islamic finance, but they don't have uh, th their their role among the Islamic superstar, the Sharia superstars, is not is not as big. So what what uh, I guess the uh, two questions: What are the um, how does Islamic finance function in in some of our Southeast Asian contexts, and uh, why aren't more of those uh, Malaysians who are taking this quite seriously um, breaking through? Uh, okay, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, right. All right, let's think about that. Um, so how it works in, in Southeast Asia uh, is that states like Malaysia, Malaysia, um, you know, according to the, the government of Malaysia, Malaysia is an Islamic state. Um, of course, according to the citizens of Malaysia, that's a, a contested term about whether Malaysia is in fact an Islamic state or not. But a place like Malaysia, what they've done is they've tried to um, promote this industry and this infrastructure as a way of, of getting in on, on rulemaking and how financial regimes should work all around the world. Uh, and that's been relatively uh, successful and productive for them. And I think that uh, other states like Indonesia, the Philippines, um, I haven't heard so much about Cambodia, but there's, there's a lot of uh, talk about uh, promoting Islamic finance in China in particular, and that will have consequences for Cambodia and Vietnam as well. Um, there's there's a lot of, uh, not necessarily copycatting, but trying to get into the industry all around the region, uh, for sure. Um, Malaysia, to me, is particularly interesting. This is something I didn't say in the talk, but I hope you don't mind. I'm just going to blither about yeah. it here. Is that all right? 
Malaysia is particularly interesting because um, they've really been trying to build educational infrastructure, and they've been very successful in that regard. And as part of building that educational infrastructure, they also have been doing consulting, and they've been doing consulting all around the world, uh, particularly, say, for example, in Sri Lanka, in the Maldives, in Afghanistan, all around the world, you find Malaysians are actually doing the trainings where people are in, in governments around the world are seeking to set up the institutions that you need in order to get Islamic mm. finance going. So although Malaysia hasn't really made inroads in terms of the Sharia superstars, the idea is as the pool of people expands, you will be seeing more and more Malaysians because uh, they're doing the training. Um, so definitely that is happening, and I think the Malaysian version of Islamic finance is becoming more influential. One of the reasons why you don't see so many Malaysians in the, the superstar ranks is because of what Malaysia has done institutionally on a, on a national level in terms of uh, supporting and promoting the use of derivatives in Islamic finance. And they're the only regime in the world that allows derivatives. Um, so that remains... In, in, is, in Islamic finance. In Islamic so, finance, yeah. yeah. Everybody else uh, in what is known as conventional finance, uh, of course, uses <laughs> derivative, eats derivatives for breakfast, right? <laughs> as we know. Uh, but in Malaysia, they, they are also used in Islamic finance. And so that's been really, really important in terms of how that industry has gotten going. Um, so that's both a reason why Malaysians have influence and also a reason why Malaysians haven't been able to gain influence in the, in the MENA region in particular. So what role have women played in this Malaysian version of Islamic finance? So that's actually another thing that um, sort of sets Malaysia apart from the rest of the industry. Um, they've been particularly um, vociferous in supporting women in the industry, and that's uh, across the industry, and it's definitely with state support. So you find a lot of Malaysian women across all sectors of the Islamic financial services industry, which includes uh, regulatory um, legal frameworks, which includes uh, accounting, which includes the, the corporate side, includes the banking side, and also um, on the Sharia advisory side, which is the folks who are actually making the rules about what should count and what should not count. And you find women across all of those sectors in Malaysia, which is very unusual. You don't really see that um, anywhere else in the world, including, of course, in conventional finance as well. So it's it's a pretty extraordinary thing that has happened. Are, I guess it never dawned on me. Are women, so are, are women better represented in Islamic finance than women are represented in conventional finance? So I think, again, that's something that I, I forgot to say today. If you are just looking at the numbers of women who are working in, say, the baking sector, you have way more women in Malaysia uh, who, are, who are working then, in then com banking Western and finance yeah, than you right. would see, say, then in Wall Street. But um, if you go up the corporate ladder and you're looking at getting into the boardroom, uh, getting into the, the rule-making divisions, that's where... Um, not unexpectedly, you see that there's not very much representation of women. There are actually a lot of women who are doing that, but it remains a very small fraction. But if you're looking at just uh, the profession itself, the industry itself, uh, the numbers are really quite extraordinary, and it's way more than you would see on Wall Street. It's a very interesting um, initiative that has happened in Malaysia. So talk to us about how, in a specific Malay or Malaysian context, 
uh, what what does their participation look like? And you brought up um, gem, gender complementarity. What what part does so all I guess all um, female participation is not equal. What's the what is what does it look like for their their engagement in this sector? So that's something that I I just became particularly interested in, and and I was interested not just in what people are doing, but also how they're they're framing their work and how they're thinking about what they're doing and how they're they're representing themselves uh, in in various forums. And I I think what's happening in Malaysia is that there's um, a, a sort of uh, a resuscitation of a, a previous ideas. Um, which aren't actually particularly local ideas. They're not particularly Malaysian, but it's a, a creation of this idea of gender complementarity where in a, in a workplace, it's assumed that everybody should be there, uh, everybody should be represented, but it's also assumed that men and women are good at different things mm. and that it would be legitimate to, to sort men and women according to those um, different skills. Uh, is it as simplistic as secretaries versus you know managers or so it's not it's not the sort of you know 1950s American version right <laughs> uh, it's not the the madman version uh, it's more in terms of um, the way that financial services work is organized uh, all over the world which is front office and back office and the front office is where the money is made and those are always the best rewarded positions because that's where the money is coming from and the back office is considered support services so that's legal that's accounting that's all of those things that have to happen in the back which of course are professions right and those are right. are re, re, you know they're well rewarded but not at the same way as you are when you're actually taking you're generating the products and you're and you're um, these are s- these are sales the commissions and things that they're getting that the people in the back office don't get all of those things exactly um, and so what's happened i would suggest is that um, in Malaysia, you find a lot of women in sales uh, because of this idea of gender complementarity and what women can do in that in that realm. But you don't see uh, women, say, in terms of um, managing the, the derivatives products or in terms of those really risky endeavors, um, the pr- proprietary trading on the part of banks that make so much money for banks at this point all around the world. Uh, and the reason is because of these ideas about um, the different strengths which are, are construed as being natural to men, women and natural to men. Um, and th- those ideas are quite interesting because it's very close to the way people talk about men and women on Wall Street as well. It's a very similar mm-hmm. set of ideas about the natural inherent divisions between men and women, which for me, uh, you know, as a social scientist, I, I wouldn't say that there are any naturally inherent different characteristics between men and women. I would just say that there are things that we've learned over time um, that we, we think in our heads, right? We, we decide to describe men and women differently. So this is interesting to me uh, because this is a sort of newly created version of gender complementarity in Malaysia, which hasn't really existed there before and which has become meaningful in people's lives. Uh, the other reason why I think it's so interesting is because it, it creates a, a, a division of labor and a, a division in terms of power and resources between men and women in Malaysia that hasn't really been there before. Um, and in fact, what you see is you see women in financial services oftentimes leaving work and going back to, to take care of children or to do things within the home context. Um, 
which also is is a, a relatively new phenomenon for Malaysia. So it's really changed up um, how women and work and the economy hook together in Malaysia. In a, a so, really so the so way. the if I'm understanding you, saying the that the the finance industry itself and the and the the, the complementarity has has exacerbated or encouraged um, women to maybe exit the the marketplace? I think so. I mean, I, I, and that's me saying that, but I think so. Um, I think um, there's a new, you know, in, in the context of Malaysia, it, there's a long history of um, expecting that women are always going to be working outside of the home and that they're going to be entrepreneurs and doing all kinds of things out in the right. public sphere. And I think what has happened over time in, in, in recent years is a, a switch in terms of sets of assumptions about women, what women should be doing, uh, which is leading women to, to work for a while, but then to actually exit the wor- workforce and to go back into the sort of reproductive work at, at home. You did a lot of your you did a lot of research, a lot of interviews, a lot of meetings you sat in on. Um, what when you talk to um, women, at all levels of, uh, of at these institutions, what? How do they talk about what's going on? What do they? What do they? Do they see it as a problem? Do they see this as like, well, they, the complementarity is natural? Like, what? What's their? Um, what are their thoughts about it? So it's interesting because, of course, there's you know there's a lots of different ideas about how things should work. Um, one thing that I noticed in terms of my conversations is that you see amongst the, on the Sharia side, those who are ruling on compliance, uh, this idea of this, this, uh, natural, naturalized version of gender complementarity seems to have a lot of sway and people talk about it in almost exactly the same words, um, both men and women. Um, on the industry side, it's actually, it's, I would say it's a, a lot more diverse. So you have uh, women who are, are rejecting that and, and working against that. You also have women who are, are really agreeing with that and are using it and making hiring decisions in, in, in places that they're actually running. So you have the whole gamut in that regard. So, so one anecdote that... <coughs> that I think got us all thinking and, and interested was that you told about a that with a an executive in in Malaysia was it an executive yeah yeah so and and uh, and t- tell us about uh, tell us about her story so she she's a particular I think she in many ways the reason why I use her as an example because she embodies many of the contradictions that are going on in the industry so she, uh, something I didn't say is she spent a lot of time talking about her experiences uh, in Saudi um, early on in her career when she was oftentimes the only woman in the room. And she, she made it into the boardroom, and so her position was particularly important in the bank that she was working for. And so she would be on, you know, on uh, sales trips and other trips to, to Saudi, and it was particularly difficult to get into the country to do the things that she needed to do. Uh, and she had a very um, sustained and reasoned critique of of the ways that financial services works in, in Saudi Arabia. And it was clearly a very important and crucial aspect of her life. Uh, she herself, she was trained in London, um, and she was actually trained as a lawyer, which is pretty common um, in financial services. And, and she was sort of headhunted into... Um, working uh, as a fund manager working in, in London. And 
that's where she sort of became interested in financial services, and that's also where she became interested in Islamic finance, and she had this experience, a kind of a conversion experience, where she realized that what she really wanted to do was ethical finance, and she got really excited. Um, and as part of that, she ended up uh, running this regional Islamic conglomerate bank in Malaysia, which is a very important um, bank in Malaysia. And in, in the conversation with her, she was explaining to me, I was asking her about how, why and how she had gotten into the industry and why she thought that she had been successful. And she said that the reason she's been ex successful in financial services is because she has high testosterone levels. And she, she followed it up and she said, and the reason that I know that is because I've had myself tested. Uh, and she's very well. serious about it. Uh, and it was clearly a meaning, it was a very meaningful aspect of her Tough. life. Um, and for her, uh, she, in her, in her thinking about, um, how banks should work and also how gender works for her, she really sees herself as the exception that proves the rule because when she's doing her hiring, she hires women into the back office and men into the risk taking. And, and she said that actually more than one time. And she wasn't the only, uh, woman who's running a bank in Malaysia who said something similar to that in terms of thinking about men and women are good at different things and therefore should be sorted into different kinds of work uh, in banking and financial services. So I, I think although that's just one person, I think it was quite meaningful in terms of the kinds of conversations that people are having in the industry. Um, something, again, something I didn't say in the lecture, but it, it's, it's, um, it's an extraordinary statement coming from her because she's uh, the most glamorous um, feminine presentation of beauty that you can imagine. Uh, so for her saying, you know, I, I know I had myself tested and I have these high right. testosterone levels, it certainly um, would confound the sets of expectations that the men that she works with would have, right? And I do not know if she's ever said that to a man, right? She was saying it to me, but um, she's incredibly glamorous, right? So it, it, it uh, sort of confounds, she, she sort of embodies the contradictions that I think are so meaningful and interesting in the industry. Not just in Malaysia, but actually right. just finance in the world, the things that it does for us in the world. It's been it's been argued elsewhere that women have an outsized role in in shaping Islamic, like especially like Quranic interpretation in Indonesia. Are women shaping Islam in Malaysia in financial ways, like uh, the the Sharia Advisory Council women, on, or or is that an exaggeration to think about in, in those terms? So I that I mean that's the thing that I just think is just endlessly fascinating. Um, Yes, uh, women in Malaysia are absolutely shaping Islam, and in particular, they're shaping it in financial services. And what has happened over time, and this is, isn't just Malaysia, but actually all around the world, over time, finance is taking over larger and larger sections of life. It's becoming more and more important, um, which of course is known as financialization. And the, the trick there is that the work that women are doing in terms of shaping Islamic finance is reaching into other corners of people's lives, and particularly for people who are not Muslim in Malaysia, which is a huge section of the population that, that's not Muslim. 
Um, so, for example, it's just quite recently that... This, this is an example of financialization? I was going to say okay. the kind of power that women have who are who are ruling on Sharia law. Okay. sure. But um, it's a fair point, which is we probably need an example of financialization as well. <laughs> so, but before we do that, um, for example... Uh, it has just recently become the case that the the highest court in Malaysia, which is a secular court, has to abide by the rulings that come from the Sharia Advisory Council. So if the Sharia Advisory Council says such and such must happen in a given court case, then the secular courts are required to abide by those rules. So what that means is the Sharia Advisory Council of the Bank Nagara, the National Bank, and also the Securities Commission, there's two of those. It means that they actually are making rulings that apply to everyone in Malaysia and uh, apply to all business in Malaysia. So it's really, it's quite an extraordinary uh, a moment uh, in terms right. of thinking about what's happening uh, with women making Islam. I think it's really, it's quite amazing. Um, so, but thinking about financialization, uh, this is also an amazing moment for financialization, but it's also, it's a, um, it's, it's a problematic moment because most of what happens, we, we don't actually get to see it. It's hidden and it has a huge effect on our life. Um, so the example that I use in relation to the U.S. is the way that employers in the U.S. oftentimes will look at your FICO score, which actually stands for Fair Isaac Company which is a, a, a proprietary company that comes up with a, a numerical credit score for people in the United States. And the credit scores are used for all kinds of things, amongst which is actually being able to get a job. And if you can't get a job because you have a bad credit score, of course, yeah. you cannot actually pay your credit, which means your credit gets worse over time. And so it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that people don't, it's not visible to us, right? So that's how financialization works. Um, and the same kinds of things are going on in Malaysia. They don't have a FICO score, but they have all kinds of different products, especially in Islamic finance, that have simil similar sets of ramifications in people's lives that, that can't necessarily be seen. So in the context of um, Malaysia, and I don't know if I mentioned this to you before, Kikui, but it's such an interesting case. In Malaysia, <laughs> sorry, the other person who's in the room. Thank you, boy. In Malaysia, when you go into a bank, they have just recently, they've made a rule that's called Islamic First, and they will offer you the Islamic product first. And if you do not know to ask for other kinds of products, that is the one that you will get. And the consequence for that is really quite extraordinary for ordinary consumers because those products are more expensive. So it's a way of, of, of taking cash out of people's pockets without necessarily, you don't necessarily even know that that's happening because you don't know what the range of products is. So again, that's what I mean about financialization. These things um, are moving and often hidden over time and they can have extraordinary effects in terms of um, your livelihood and your ability to do the kinds of things that you want to do. Um, yeah, so that's what I'm sort of thinking about in terms of financialization. I think the Malaysian case shows us how financialization, it, it, uh, under the guise of, of promoting women uh, oftentimes in, into powerful positions at the same time is, is uh, disempowering and actually uh, devalorizing women's works uh, in other terrains. So that it's kind of a sleight of hand where two things are happening at once and it looks like it's going to be really great, but for ordinary investors, ordinary citizens, it's not actually working out in the same kinds of ways. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. 
and, and a very uh, hidden cost to the to the consumer and um, as well. But thank you again for coming out to see us. But before we let you go, um, uh, where can we where can we see uh, this appearing is this is this article book what are, what are we working on here <laughs> what am I trying to do here? yeah uh, so there's a couple of pieces that are actually just getting ready to come out um, so there's a, a book an edited volume that's coming out called Sharia Dynamics uh, which is coming out from Palgrave and it should be coming any moment now I'm waiting and <laughs> I'm very excited <laughs> to see it come uh, there's some other uh, shorter articles but what I'm really trying to do is uh, write a book um, which is thinking about how Muslim women are, are remaking financial worlds and why these these regimes of Islamic finance are so meaningful not just in Malaysia but in Southeast Asia in the in the Middle East and also in the US uh, and so I'm working on this book which is called faith in finance um, Muslim women remaking financial worlds um, and I'm hoping that's going to be coming soon uh, yeah, and then there's this larger project uh, thinking about religion and business uh, all around the world, which is being run by um, Terence Gomez at the University of Malaya, which I think is really f- just incredibly fascinating and interesting, and I'm hoping that some, some pieces will be coming out in relation to that as well. Yeah, okay. Thank you, Laura. Uh, I almost forgot. Um, we always ask our guests, what's your favorite uh, Southeast Asian dish? Okay, Um so we were laughing earlier because I work in Malaysia, so it's almost by law that I should say nasi lemak, but <laughs> and then specify the exact vendor on the street in Kuala Lumpur that has the best nasi lemak. Um, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> it's right at the Bukit Bintang rail station is where that one is, by the way. <laughs> it's a very important thing to know. <laughs> um, and I do agree. Uh, but actually, um, last year I got a chance to go to Myanmar and I had this thing that's really extraordinary, which has fermented tea leaves and uh, nuts and all kinds of other things. And it's kind of like a salad, but it's really an appetizer. And I can't remember what it's called, but fortunately it has been researched for me and it's actually called... Yeah, what did we decide What did we decide it was? It's a... Uh, um this will be fun for uh, go ahead and tweet at us uh, how we screw this up. But um, La Pet Toque in Burmese. Um, so, yeah, that is that is delicious, which is just wonderful um, because food is really the most the most crucial thing. So, yes, I, I had a, um, a grad seminar and just two weeks ago, a student brought that in as like a oh, he was kidding. presenting. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm so jealous. Yeah. So uh, so. You should come to NIA more often. I will. <laughs> Thank you very much. So thanks again, and uh, we'll see you around. Bye. Southeast Asia Crossroads would like to thank Michael McSweeney for production assistance and Troubadour 77 for today's music. Hear more from them at troubadour77.com. <laughs>